Well, good morning. It was great to see you. My name is Daniel. One of the pastors. I'm glad you decided to come and worship us. Hope each of you feel welcomed. We're glad you're here uh, and you can be a part of our community. Uh, we are in the third week of Advent, uh, as you've seen in the service already. Advent is a season in the life of the church where Christians embody and live into this tension of living between the two times, the first and second coming of Jesus, the already of God's kingdom and the not yet fully revealed kingdom of God. And I've got to say, I apologize, I'm a little sick, I've been I've been flying out sick for like a month, so uh, I'm always on that call so I apologize if that happens this morning. But we are in our third week of Advent, and I don't know about you, but for me and our family. This is often a time filled with Christmas carols in our home where we're buying presents for family and friends, and reviewing Christmas lights, or decorating Christmas trees. But for Christians, Advent is not always a time of singing Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. As much as my littlest son is loving that song these days, Advent is not always a happy, clappy time with Christmas Day as the cherry on the top. Uh, one of the Advent readings uh, from two weeks ago was from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Uh, Isaiah 9, 2 says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The people who have seen a great light, the light has shown that we cannot miss that we are a people who walk in darkness. That our world is filled with darkness. And Christianity is not for the faint of heart. As Fleming Rutledge says, Christianity is not for sissies. In this room this morning, I know there are people who've experienced trauma, abuse, loss of life, loss of job, sickness, natural disasters, loneliness. Life can feel empty. My neighbor told me a few weeks ago that his brother and sister-in-law gave birth to what had been told to them to be a healthy baby boy. And six days later, their son died unexpectedly. can imagine emptiness and the darkness experience. And in 2015, Dylan Roof walked into the manual Amy in Charleston, South Carolina, and opened fire, killing 90 people during a prayer battle. In times like these, I know it feels like darkness has overcome the light. And the principal of Goose Creek School in Charleston, where one of the murdered members of the manual Amy was the, the track coach, said this, our society is broken, but there will be a time when everything is made right. There will be a time when things are made right. That, that is passive tense. Will be made right because it is something that must be done to and for us. There is a divine agency to all things being made right. God is the one who will make all that is wrong in this world right. Spring is coming, but winter is here. We live in darkness. We long for the sun to rise and for light to shine into the darkness. Our series is Advent, looking at the mothers of Jesus, the women in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Jesus' genealogy. All of these women become pregnant in scandalous ways. Tamar, who we looked at a few weeks ago, became pregnant through incest. Ruth, who we're looking at this morning, through an interracial marriage. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, Bathsheba. An extramarital affair and Mary out of wedlock. These women let us see that Jesus, who is the light of the world, comes into brokenness 
in darkness, that Jesus actually comes through brokenness, brokenness, and the light shines into darkness. The book of Ruth is a book about darkness and emptiness and hopelessness, but God shining into the darkness. So I'm going to read part of chapter 1 and part of chapter 4. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we look at God's Word together. Ruth 1, 8-17, Ruth chapter 4, 13 through 17. This is God's word to us this morning. But Naomi said her two daughters in law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find a rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I, if I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me, for your sake, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother in law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following me. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from me. And when Naomi saw that she had determined to go with her, she said, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nurture of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Isaiah tells us the grass withers, the flowers fade, God's prayer. God asked that you would come and speak to us. That you would, by your spirit, illumine the scriptures that you've given to us. May our light, uh, our minds be enlightened with your truth. May our hearts be inflamed, stirred as we encounter you through your word. May we be transformed because you have spoken to us this morning. God, I pray that you would remove me the preacher so that Christ alone is exalted. God, I pray that the light of Christ might break through the darkness as we meet with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've got to start by retelling the story of Ruth uh, because uh, obviously there are a lot of gaps missed in reading part of chapter 1, part of chapter 4. So let me kind of summarize the book of Ruth for you. Naomi and her husband Ahimelech and their two sons were living in Israel. They were living in Bethlehem. And, and it was a really bad time in Israel. There was a great famine. And so they were very desperate for food and they decided that they were going to flee to Moab. Now, the Jews disdained the Moabites because the Moabites came out of incest between Abraham's nephew Lot and Adar. 
So they were in the family tree of the Jews, but the Jews wanted to disown them. They were polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods. And in their religions, they offered child sacrifices. The Moabites were deeply disdained. So for Naomi and Ahimelech and their two sons to flee to Moab, it had to be really dire in Israel. And the first five verses of the book of Ruth are brutal for Naomi. We didn't read them, but upon arriving in Moab, her husband dies, and a few years later, her two sons die. And Naomi is left with her two daughters, Orpah and Ruth. And can you imagine how devastating it is for Naomi? She leaves her home, she leaves everything she knows, and then she loses everything as she flees to Moab. This is similar to what we saw a few weeks ago with Tamar. Naomi is now unmarried, no longer able to have children. She's old. She'll have no grandchildren. She has nothing to function and to thrive well in her society. She is economically and psychologically destroyed. She's empty. And so Naomi decides that she's going to go back home. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. And instead of taking Orpah and Ruth with her, she says in verse 8, which we read, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. You'll find rest there. Maybe you'll be able to find another husband and have children. After some coercing, Orpah agrees, kisses Naomi and leaves, but Ruth clings to Naomi. Ruth binds herself to Naomi and she says, Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. There's unbelievable courage for Ruth. She is clinging to Naomi, going to Israel, a place that Ruth knows will be worse than life in Moab. Friend, Bethlehem, Ruth will be an immigrant, a racial outsider, despised, violence will be a very real threat, but she goes anywhere. And they arrive in Bethlehem. They come across some of Naomi's old acquaintances and they call out, hey Naomi, which means sweet. And Naomi responds, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. And through these names, you can see just how desperate Naomi is. The sweet has become bitter. Her life is dark. In the ancient Near East, Israel would make provision for the widow and the poor by leaving the edges of their fields and harvest unharvested so that the poor and the widow could come and harvest the edges for provision. They would also only sweep through their fields once, leaving all that was left of the ground behind for the poor to come behind and pick up. So Ruth just happens during harvest time, to come upon the field of a man named Boaz. And Boaz sees Ruth's love for Naomi, her willingness to leave her home, bind herself to Naomi, and Boaz seeks to care for her. He tells his workers to leave food for Ruth, to protect her, to give her access to water, look out for her. A normal gleaning for the poor would have been around one to two pounds of grain. And during that time, all the poor would have to fight over the grain. It was kind of a free-for-all into the fields. But Ruth returns to Naomi with 29 pounds of grain. And Naomi's response is, how in the world are you bringing home 29 pounds And Ruth tells her, what happened upon this field of a man named Boaz? He was very kind. And Naomi says, hi, he's our relative. He was in the Himalayas family. And Naomi says he can be our kinsman redeemer, meaning he could redeem Naomi and Ruth out of their situation. 
He could buy back the land that was once Naomi's when her and Elimelech were married. He could also marry Ruth and fulfill the lever of law to marry and give children. So Naomi, knowing this, sends Ruth back to Boaz as he's asleep on the threshing floor, which is equivalent of like the market, open-air market, like the farmer's market downtown in Durham. And Ruth goes to Boaz, uncovers his feet, text says, and many commentators debate if this was sexual or not, but we do know this was scandalous. This was a bold and courageous move by Ruth to lay at his feet. And then Boaz wakes up, and Ruth has some guts. Will you marry me? Marry me. Fast forward to the end of the book, Boaz redeems the land, marries Ruth, and from their marriage comes Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David, the royal line I want to press in on three things from this beautiful story, this gospel story of Ruth. Three things about light shining into the darkness. Light shines into darkness through sacrifice, through providence, through redemption. Sacrifice, providence, and redemption. Let's look first at light shining into the darkness through sacrifice. Naomi is empty and bitter. She's trying to send Orpah and Ruth back home. And this would leave Naomi literally without nothing. Naomi is willing to sacrifice the very last thing she has, her two daughter-in-law, for their own sake. She knows life in Moab will be better for them. So even if it means losing the last thing she has, she's willing to sacrifice for their sake and their future. That is sacrificial love. And how does Ruth respond in verse 16? Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts of me. I don't know if you're catching what's happening there. But Ruth, a polytheistic Moabite, converts and now believes in the God of Him. She invokes Yahweh's name. She vows, may the Lord do so to me. Your God, Yahweh, is now my God. You see what's happening? That the sacrificial love of Naomi is what God uses to convert Ruth. If you're a Christian here this morning, statistics show that the majority of us who are Christians have come to faith in Jesus through a relationship. Be it a family member, a friend, a pastor, a neighbor, a coach, a teacher. That most people become Christians through love relationships. Not a phenomenal sermon, not some great logical argument, but through loving relationships. Heard a pastor tell the story of an author in Australia. The author's name was Tim Winton. He went on this talk show host, and I went on a talk show, and the host asked him there in Australia, So, Tim, I hear you're a Christian. How did you become a Christian? And he shared that when he was five years old, his father was a police officer. He got hit by a drunk driver. And his father was in a coma for months. And when his father finally came to, he was a shell of his former self. And the mother couldn't care for the father all alone. He was a large man, five-year-old son. She couldn't get him out of bed and, and bathe him. And there was an article in the local paper talking about their difficult situation. And one day a man showed up at their door. He was involved in a local church. And he just asked, how can I help you? 
And the mother said, I, I can't bathe my husband. He's too large, I can't move him, I can't bathe him. This was 1960s Australia. And this man comes back day after day after day to take care of and bathe the father. And Tim said, that is when I decided to be a Christian. I thought, what God makes people behave like that? I want that God. A life of sacrificial love toward others will make people ask the question, what God makes people behave like that? And I want that. See, Ruth wants the God who causes people to love like Naomi. You notice that Naomi wasn't trying to convert Ruth. She wasn't trying to butthole her in some argument. Naomi doesn't even say, if you believe my God, then I'm going to love you. No. Naomi's belief in an exclusive God, the one true God, leads her to an inclusive love. And her inclusive love leads Ruth to leave her many gods and trust in the one true Radical, sacrificial in the context of a relationship is what God often uses to draw people to faith in Christ. Let me ask you two things. The first is, have you bound yourself to Jesus? You have to ask the question. Have you bound yourself in faith to Jesus? If not, maybe today would be the day. If you are a Christian, how are you doing it loving with sacrificial love? Not loving people that are like you, or people that believe like you, but loving people just to love them. I wonder if your life has the aroma of sacrificial love. So that when people experience you in a relationship, they say, I don't like God and this people love. God's light shines into the darkness through sacrifice. The second thing we see is that light shines into the darkness through providence. An interesting thing about the book of Ruth is that there are no miracles in the book. There's no voice of God. There are no signs. Some commentators and scholars have said God is absent in the book of Ruth. Naomi's life is dark. She's bitter. And we all know life can be hard at times. Life can feel dark and empty. Perhaps you feel that this morning. But to say that God is absent through the book of Ruth is to miss how God is at work through providence. Providence, as defined by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Short Catechism, is this way. Providence are God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and their actions. Providence is God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. God is at work through providence throughout the book of Ruth. God is the one who leads Naomi and her family to Moab during famine. And during the devastation of losing her family, Naomi's love converts Ruth to faith in God. And Naomi, though she feels like she has nothing, is given Ruth. And Ruth just happens to be on the field of Boaz, the one who's able to redeem Ruth. God is orchestrating everything for Naomi and Ruth, the good and the difficult. And he is protecting and providing all the way. And we get to the end of the story, which we read in chapter 4, and Naomi has a grandchild on her lap. And land has been restored. Redemption has been accomplished and applied. Here's what I'm saying. 
Even in the times when you and I feel like God is absent. Like life is dark and empty. God is at work. God's working in providence doesn't mean life is going to be easy and comfortable. I'm promising you that. I'm promising that he's at work. I mean, think about the life of Joseph in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. God used the difficult times, the suffering in Joseph's life to get him to the place where he wanted him to be. From Joseph being sold into slavery to being jailed, God was at work the whole time. If you're using our church's Advent devotional, two Thursdays ago spoke exactly to this point. The devotional asked, where was God when Joseph's life did not go as planned? Where was God when everything seemed to go wrong? God was with them the whole time. And God's light was shining into the darkness, even if Joseph did not see it. When life gets dark, we feel better. When we want to say, call me more. Life is bitter. I want you to believe that God is at work. God is with you. God is shining into the darkness, even though you cannot see it. Naomi couldn't see it. She gets to Bethlehem with Ruth, and she says, I'm bitter, I'm empty, I have nothing. And Ruth had to be thinking, what? What about me? I'm right here with you. And Naomi was missing God's grace to convert Ruth, and then for Ruth to cling to Naomi. God was at work with Naomi, didn't see it. And then through Ruth and Boaz, God was about to redeem Naomi's whole life. There's no place in the Bible it says, if you trust and follow Jesus, life's going to be sweet. Jesus actually tells us that we're going to have trials and tribulations. Follow him and life might be worse. But all is not hopeless. Because the God who is over all things is underneath and around and beside you. He is at work. May this be your confidence. At times, it might feel like God's turning away. He is smiling and he is rejoicing over you because he is at work even when we can see Through his providence, light shines into the darkness. The last way that we see the light shines into the darkness is through redemption. I've already mentioned Boaz, but look with me again. For hope to come to Naomi and Ruth, they needed redeeming. And Boaz, because he was kin of Ahimelech, could buy the land back that was theirs before they fled and left for Moab. The bold and courageous Ruth goes and asks for him to buy this land back. But not only that, she lays at his feet and then says, Will you marry me? And Boaz redeems Ruth and Naomi. He buys the land and he marries Ruth. And we see that Ruth has a child. One of my favorite Broadway plays is Lee Miz. It was number one until I saw Hamilton a few weeks ago. Now it's like very cool. The Robins. I'm not sure which one I love most. Uh, of them both. But if you've seen like this, you know the scene that I'm about to talk about. It, it displays redemption so beautifully and so powerfully. John Valjean is arrested. He gets out of prison. He has nothing. He's hungry. He's empty. His life is dark. The bishop takes him into his home, feeds him, lets him stay the night. During the middle of the night, Valjean decides to steal the silver, the dinnerware, and leave the house. Police end up catching Valjean in the streets and they bring him back to the bishop. And the police are expecting the bishop to say, Guilty, lock him up, throw away the keys. And then here comes the song that is sung during the fire by this moment. 
On seeing her, the police said, We have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. He had the nerve to say you gave him this. The bishop says, That is right. I'm speaking to Valjean. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot I gave these also. Would you leave the best one? Monsignor released him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. And God's blessings go with you. But remember this, my brother. See in this some high plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. I have saved your soul. Saving life through a purchase. And there were three things necessary for Boaz to redeem Ruth's life. Boaz had to be from the family to be the kinsman redeemer. He had to be able to do it, and he had enough money to purchase the land, and then he had to be willing to do it. And Boaz was from a family, able and willing. But we have one better than Boaz. Jesus of God's eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity, who owns all things. He is able. And he was willing to leave the riches of heaven and become poor, so that he could redeem us by giving up his very life to purchase us out of darkness. Jesus comes from the line of Ruth. Ruth, the one who came down from Moab, who was willing to leave it all, to enter a world that would be worse. A place where she would be despised and rejected and suffered. And it is through her that the suffering servant, our Redeemer Jesus, Isaiah 53 tells us that the one who would come would also be despised and rejected and smitten and afflicted. And Jesus would empty himself of all his rights, all his privileges as the Son of God, so that you and I could be redeemed. We have been bought with a Life is not our God, God calls us to see our redemption and to be transformed like God's home. To use our life so that all might know this God of salvation and redemption. To spend our life by giving it away in sacrificial love to others. See, when the love and light of Christ bursts through our darkness and fills our hearts, we will be a people who love sacrificial love like that. And by God's grace, we will see redemption happen, not just in our lives, but in the lives of those we love. When God's redeeming love fills our hearts, we will trust Him that He is at work in providence even when we can't see Him. When God's redeeming love fills our hearts, we will rejoice that we have a Redeemer who gave His life Lord, I ask that you would fill our hearts, pierce our minds, help us to, to fully comprehend how high and wide and deep is the love of Christ. Help us to see your sacrifice. Help us to know, God, that even when life is dark and we feel like you're passing, you are always at work. And may we rejoice this day, not tomorrow, not next week, not on Christmas Day, but may we rejoice this day that our Redeemer laid down His life and rose again to life, that our Redeemer lives and is coming again, and all will be made right in that second coming. Pray you give us hope, 